Good morning, dear Intriguer, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss Slovakia's general election and a novel new approach to the war on drugs. It's all coming up. Hey there, John. How are you? Doing very well, Ethan. We're both uh, dressed to the nines in golf polos. Mine is because I ran out of other clothes. You, uh, you play some golf this morning, or no? I didn't. I didn't. I, this uh, this shirt. I'm sure you've seen it a dozen times. I used to work at a golf club, and they gave me six of these exact shirts to wear throughout the week. I kept all six, and now I wear them just about every day. Still, I think that's called decision efficiency. Minimize the decisions you make in your personal <laughs> life, right? <laughs> cleared everything else out of my closet just six <laughs> plain blue striped polos it's really great you should try it uh so, <laughs> so john a, a few weeks ago we chatted about eu commission president ursula von der leyen's state of the eu address the Société, uh how it showed that you know the war in ukraine represented a, a, a potentially unifying moment for the continent Today, we're going to talk about the other side of that unity. Yeah, well, I actually, I remember when we had that chat about um, von der Leyen's speech, we kind of, we made a passing reference to her very difficult job of keeping all member states kind of singing from the same hymn sheet. Um, and, you know, I think that's the story that we're covering today is elections are generally the best barometer of of how pu- the public is feeling about issues and, and, and you know, what, what they have to say about government. And there was an election in Slovakia. Uh, over the weekend. Tons of issues, obviously, given it was a national election, but it essentially ended up becoming a referendum on Slovakia's support for Ukraine because, the, you know, amongst other reasons, the, the positions of the, the main candidates were just so wildly different. It was kind of the one unifying thing that they all had a position on. Um, pre-election polling last week wasn't particularly conclusive, but it, it, it looks like that the Ukraine skeptical party of, uh, of Robert Fitzo, I think has won enough votes to secure a majority in the Slovak parliament. Um, you know, I think it's not a sure thing that he'll, he'll be able to form a, a coalition to govern. Um, he's not a popular character and his rivals are really very keen to prevent him taking power, but that's where we are now. Yeah. He's, he's at least been given the first go ahead at attempting to form a coalition. Right. But so, so what do we know about Robert Fitzo? Well, he's, he's an interesting character. He was uh, prime minister from 2006 to 2010, uh, and then again from 2012 to 2018, uh, as leader of a very populist party called Direction Social Democracy, aka SMER, S-M-E-R. Don't ask, don't ask how those letters become that acronym. I, oh, right, but. exactly. It sounds a little bit like Spectre, but I, you know... <laughs> <laughs> I digress. Um, he, but, he, but interestingly, Fitzo was forced to resign in, in 2018 over what was a huge crisis or scandal in Slovakia, but it was the murder of an inve- investigative journalist and, and the journalist's fiance. Um, and some people linked that murder back to his party. Um, he was almost, I mean, he was unable to run um, and nearly went to prison on organized crime charges, but he didn't, he managed to avoid going to prison uh, because his fellow lawmakers uh, agreed to grant him immunity from prosecution. Um, and, and this was, as I said, it was a huge issue in Slovakia. There were protests. Um, I think a really important, well-connected Slovakian businessman was sentenced to jail for the murder. It was it was, a, it was a hit. It was proven to be a hit. So it was really controversial. Um, and actually, some analysts, I think, say that his legal battles, you know, avoiding 
avoiding all this stuff was the impetus behind him mm. running for prime minister again. That sounds familiar, <laughs> doesn't it? Um, down, but, John, uh, you know, down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as for Fitzgerald's politics, um, I think it's fair to say they kind of shift with the winds. He, he's been pro-Western um, in the past, but during his most recent run for office, he was staunchly anti-EU, socially conservative. He had lots of anti-gay rhetoric um, and that kind of nasty stuff. And importantly, he was fiercely, fiercely anti-Ukraine. Um, he actually said in his victory speech that, and quoting here, people in Slovakia have bigger problems than Ukraine. And he wrote in an all caps on Facebook, you know, that classic boomer way of uh, communicating on Facebook, all caps, <laughs> the world is starting to get fed up with Zelensky and Ukraine because they are ungrateful and still unsatisfied. Um, you know, it's an interesting, an interesting position to be irritated um, about the level of gratefulness shown by a guy fighting a war. But there we are. He's promised to end Slovakia's military aid to Ukraine as a result. So mm. it's pretty serious stuff. You said it was all caps, but I didn't hear you speaking in all caps. I, I, I was going to, I don't want to yell down, down the <laughs> microphone. <laughs> well, John, I mean, he doesn't sound so dissimilar to other characters that we've come to know and love maybe not you know depending on who yeah, you I was are, gonna say, where are you going with that love <laughs> he sounds like hungary's victor orban to me yeah okay that's that's the rub yeah it, and i think you're right um I, I think you're right not least because orban um celebrated on on twitter or x or whatever uh with a post that read again quote guess who's back always good to work together with a patriot looking forward to it so those are that's, i mean between world leaders that's a that's pretty warm that's pretty yeah. that's pretty genuine so there's obviously a connection between between the two so if we kind of zoom out a bit, I mean, it's not great news for Ukraine because Slovakia has been a really big donor uh, of aid to Ukraine, um, was among the first countries to supply Ukraine with uh, fighter jets and tanks. Um, and I think it'll be disappointing for, for, for Ukrainian supporters in Slovakia and in Ukraine, of course, because um, they're well, potentially losing a reliable friend. You know, I think there's still a chance. I say potentially because I think there's a chance that Fitzo does, if he does end up managing to form a coalition and, and, and taking power, um, he seems to be a bit of a pragmatist. So there's, I think there's a chance that he will kind of realize that he's through the, the, the political campaigning side of things and, and take a more moderate course. Um, you know, I think that in a way is less concerning than Viktor Orban's position, which has been much more kind of almost principled opposition to, to the Ukrainian um, aid. Um, and, you know, I think particularly if, um, you know, I think people have compared him to Georgia Maloney in Italy, which is not a dissimilar situation as well. Georgia Maloney was elected um, on a fairly right-wing platform. If we remember, there was breathless headlines about how she was, you know, to the right of Mussolini and all this kind of stuff. But she's really been pretty moderate um, in practice uh, when she's had to govern. I think the hope is that Fitzo might be the same as well. But still, John, I mean, no, no matter how pragmatic Fitzo becomes, this this election still tells us a lot about where European voters are, at least on the issue of support for Ukraine, right? Yeah, it does. I think it's important to separate European voters. I mean, there's Eastern European, Northern European, you know, they're, they're, it, it is one block, but they are, you know, hugely disparate with different interests. But I think you can draw the generalization and say we are starting to see some cracks showing up in that sort of pro-unity, pro-Ukraine um, position. In Poland, which has got an election coming up in about two weeks on the 15th of October, the, the ruling party there has taken a pretty sharp turn against Ukraine uh, or supplying uh, Ukraine with aid in recent weeks, I think mostly as an electoral strategy. Um, when we were at Unger a couple of weeks back, uh, I covered uh, the comments from President Andrzej Duda, who, who said, 
Ukraine uh, is like a drowning person. You know, they'll t- they'll take you down with them, kind of idea, which is pretty pretty punchy language, um, to be honest. Uh, and then shortly after that, uh, Poland suspended arms sales to Ukraine. So you know, there was a bit of follow up as well. Um, and that's despite Poland, I think, being probably Ukraine's staunchest supporter since the start of the war, arguably anyway. Um, in I think Polish politicians have expressed their frustration by you know banning imports of Ukrainian grain. Um, and and those they've got a lot of issues with Ukraine, and it's kind of they're kind of managing to harness it and use it in a in an election context. Um, overall, though, I think it shows that countries along Ukraine's borders, um, and and let's not forget they've accepted millions of refugees from Ukraine. They've provided billions of dollars of aid. Um, they're starting to feel the resources are stretched a bit thin. And when you're campaigning for political office, it's very easy to blame these things for the problems of your people when you want to get reelected, right? Yeah, but John, it's not just Ukraine's neighbors. I mean, we here, uh, uh, fortunate enough to, to live in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., uh, we just watched over the weekend, uh, lawmakers step back no, from the brink. I know, you <laughs> saw it too. We watched it all with uh, shock and consternation. Lawmakers step back from the brink of a government shutdown. That was frankly only averted when Democrats on Capitol Hill agreed to go along with the demands of some Republican members uh, to suspend aid to Ukraine. That was what ultimately averted the shutdown. Yeah, right. And and not just a little bit of money, either, not chump change. Uh, Republicans, I think, stripped or in the House at least, they stripped about six billion in assistance to Ukraine um, that a bipartisan group of senators had previously agreed to. So it's you know it's good amount of coin there. Um, you know, a few days before Congress voted to keep the government open, the House held a vote on prohibiting all aid to Ukraine, uh, and that won 93 Republican votes up from wow. seven, so yeah, 70 votes um, in July. Again, that's not overly concerning at this point because I think those people are what you would call on the more extreme side, but the upward trend, you know, I think, I think people will be watching that. Um, you know, I, I don't think ultimately that means – you know, the, the vote over the weekend means that Ukraine funding will be suspended for that long. Congress will probably get its get itself together and pass a different piece of legislation uh, to provide Ukraine with ongoing military and economic assistance. But it shows, as I say, that that trend around the world um, for those who have been supporting Ukraine that their patience perhaps isn't infinite, and they uh, they're getting a little frustrated. So, what can Ukraine then do to head off this trend, both you know across the Atlantic, Europe, and, and the US? Is it a, a is its PR strategy insufficient? Well, the, the simple answer is not simple to execute, and that's that they need some serious major battlefield victories um, in the counteroffensive that you know wasn't the counteroffensive over the summer. Um, I, I, you know, I think it's I think it's important to kind of realize the counteroffensive isn't necessarily going badly, and I think that's been the message of the thirty-seven-year-old head of Ukraine's spy agency lately. He's been making the rounds of Western media, uh, reminding everyone that this stuff doesn't happen overnight. You're fighting a well-resourced army. They got, you know, a whole, a whole year almost to dig in, got to be patient. Um, and, and also pointing to the fact that Ukraine has broken through some Russian defenses in some places. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's going badly per se, but it's certainly not going well. And it's certainly not going as well as people who are funding and pouring billions of dollars of aid into Ukraine would like it to be going. Um, realistically, there hasn't been any movement in the front lines for, you know, almost a year now, like, you know, since last November. Um, you know, I think the other problem is that without those battlefield victories, the moral arguments um, are quite hard to sustain over time. Um, you know, I think, you know, famously Winston Churchill did a great job of it for in World War II for six years, but now it's kind of hard to sort of, 
you know, convince people that they need to spend money and more money and more money and more money on the, on the, on the moral side alone. Um, and, you know, I think that miss, obviously this misses the, the bigger picture. It's quite a short-sighted position to take, but it's the dynamic that's kind of driving the Ukrainian skepticism around the world of like battlefield victory or what are we, what are we getting for our money? Um, I think on the bright side, because we've always got to have a bright side, um, there were a bunch of EU foreign ministers in Kiev yesterday uh, as a show of support for Ukraine. Um, I think that most governments, again, we, we talked about we talked about Poland, Slovakia. They were in elections. That's a specific context. My my gut tells me that most governments still remain behind Ukraine. There are some cracks, but I'm I'm not I'm not being pessimistic. I think I think I think it, I think it'll be okay um, at least into the near future. Today's episode is sponsored by Patent Drop. If you love international intrigue, you'll love Patent Drop. It's a twice weekly tech briefing that will keep you on the front lines of innovation. Patent Drop's team of investigative journalists scour the US patent and trademark website to uncover the revolutionary ideas that indicate the direction big tech companies are taking our future. Check out the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. So we, we've just now talked about the evolving Republican position on Ukraine, but we've also learned a lot about other Republican foreign policy priorities during the course of the presidential primary. And John, here's the one that stuck out to us. So as president, would you support sending U.S. special forces over the border into Mexico to take out fentanyl labs, to take out drug cartel operations. Would you support that kind of American military use? Yes, and I will do it on day one. Here's the thing. The cartels are killing tens of thousands of our fellow citizens. You want to talk about a country in decline? You have the cartels controlling a lot of part of your southern border. We have to reestablish the rule of law, and we have to defend our people. The president of the United States has got to use all available powers as commander in chief to protect our country and to protect the people. For a tiny fraction, and it will be a tiny fraction of what we have already spent in Ukraine, we can help you, Mexico, regain your sovereignty from the Mexican drug cartels who are spilling over into our own homeland here. But if you don't do it, then we will come in and get the job done ourselves. Because the fact of the matter is, it's like if you have a neighbor who has a dog that comes over to your yard and keeps biting your family members repeatedly. If they keep repeatedly doing that, at some point you can take a shotgun and shoot that dog. That's legitimately, legal, morally, ethically justified. Okay, so that was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at the first Republican debate, and then Vivek Ramaswamy on a Fox Business show. John, what's going on? Why are they threatening to invade Mexico? It's <laughs> a great question. Uh, I, I don't know. No. <laughs> um, well, actually, it's not even really their idea. Uh, it's one that dates back, I think, to the later years of the Trump administration, I think, was when it first popped up uh, as, a, <laughs> as a thought bubble. Um, I think they would say, and you sort of heard them say it in, the, in those clips, um, that the drug cartels based in Mexico are responsible for importing a hell of a lot of dangerous opioids like fentanyl into the US, and those opioids kill a lot of Americans, a lot of Americans. Um, and in that regard, I think it's a very reasonable point. It's a, it's a huge issue. The opioid crisis in, in America is, a, is, no, is no joke. Uh, Drug-related deaths have skyrocketed in recent years from 
about well, under 20,000 at the turn of the century. And that's the 21st century. So 20, 23 years ago um, to over 107,000 in 2021, which is just wild. Um, you know, I don't want to get into too deep into the pharmacological side of things, but a big part of this is how much more potent drugs are. Um, fentanyl, for example, is, you know, orders of magnitude more more potent than its predecessors like heroin um, or, or other drugs like that. And according to the Washington Post, a year's supply of pure fentanyl powder for the US market would fit in the beds of two pickup trucks. So wow. yeah, and then and then you kind of think about how if if that's what they if that's what you're trying to smuggle over a border, it's pretty easy to do that if you've got that little that needs to be smuggled in over the course of a year, right? So um, I think the idea among some Republicans in their in their in their presidential primary debates is to get tough and finally end the drug war or the war on drugs, as it were, by bringing the entire weight of the U.S. armed forces to bear on the cartels in Mexico. That makes a lot of sense. Let's. Uh... Let's play the outro music and wrap up yeah. early. I mean, who could argue with that? Great idea, right? Um, problem is, a, a lot a lot of people have problems with it, and I, I suspect um, even even some of our listeners, when you first hear that kind of like you know, <laughs> go to war against the gut, uh, the drug cartels in Mexico, it, it just doesn't pass the smell test. I don't think. Um, you know, first of all, because such an operation would require the consent of the Mexican government, who are uh, unlikely to give it, to put it mildly. Um, it's only if you're doing things by the book, John. <laughs> oh, God, it's a resident American going AWOL on me again. <laughs> when this when this uh, idea cropped up kind of, oh, I don't know, probably was the spring, um, President AMLO, Mexican President AMLO, called the proposals arrogant and said, not only are we not going to allow it, we're denouncing it. So, you know, pretty strong words to get a sense of what the Mexicans think about it. I mean, he won't be in power by the time the next US president is inaugurated. So, you know, it won't be him dealing with this issue if it if it is actually an issue. Um, but I can't comprehend that any Mexican president would allow US troops, you know, to have carte blanche to run around Mexico um, doing as they wish. That's only if the Mexican people elect their president, John. <laughs> here we that go. go on? Do you understand what Cons- I'm trying to say? Conspiracy theories, you heard them here first. <laughs> the people are going to trace trace back uh, the, the fall of Mexico to the 51st state of America back to this podcast, Ethan. We're going to get in trouble. Um, <laughs> no, but more seriously, because it is a serious issue at its core, although it's tempting not to treat it seriously because it's so, you know, clearly absurd. Um, but I think the bigger problem is that American interventions don't really work. And it's kind of how many, how many more examples of this do we, do we need before we kind of get the message, right? Um, you know, if, I think if the US were to go ahead with a unilateral strike, as you are clearly not suggesting, by the way. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, but, you know, if they, if they struck on Mexican territory, like, you know, maybe they have struck on Afghanistan or Iraqi or, or Pakistani territory in the past. It's safe to assume, assume that any cooperation with Mexico on everything, from border control to trade relations, would become quite a bit more difficult. It's not a good idea, I guess, is what I'm saying. Um, and and you know, I think even threatening an invasion, it might it might um, sort of give a boost to the poll ratings to Ramaswamy and these characters, but it also gives a huge boost to politicians who. Um, warn against American interventionism and rail against that kind of stuff as well. So it'd be a pretty good thing for China and Russia, I'd have to think as well. It's called a coalition of the willing, John. Look it up. For the love of God, look it up. So, (laughs) you know, to be serious, like you said, this is a a serious problem. Uh, Americans are dying of opioid overdoses. What options do policymakers have to battle the cartels? 
Yeah, well, I think I think that's hot, like the bit. It's all of the problem. There, there aren't many options, um, and that's why we get these kinds of ideas. You know, making it onto the headlines. Um, re, re, if we if we sort of look at the problem, cartels operate essentially the same as a terrorist organization, right? Um, their leadership is kind of diffuse. They're all over the place. There's no clear chain. I mean, there's a clear chain of command, but it's not, you can't just go and take down the leader and the whole thing falls apart. They certainly don't abide by international rules of war and these kinds of things. And and they absolutely use terror to intimidate local populations that, you know, almost certainly don't want them operating around them. Um, I think some Republicans pointed to the the drug war in Colombia and America's involvement in that as a model to follow. Um, And it's true, you know, homicides in Colombia have certainly fallen, you know, many, many reasons for that, but the production of cocaine hasn't at all. So it's gone up, which kind of tells you that, you know, you probably shouldn't be pointing to that as a great example of what you're trying to do in Mexico if you want to fix the opioid crisis. So, I mean, long story short, I don't know what the fix is. I I hope there is one, um, but I don't think it's going to be as satisfying as many people want. Um, But something has to be done because hundreds of thousands of people have been killed as a result of drug, of drug trafficking. Um, Again, let me reiterate here, I'm skeptical, <laughs> I'll go on record, as skeptical that military force is, is the answer here for these kinds of problems. It certainly makes a chest-thumping uh, moment for these folks trying to stand out amongst the political dregs of running for president, uh, but it's not the right idea. And I, and I think it's, you know, back to our first story today, it's a really good example of the kinds of things that can kind of get taken out of context and blown up out of proportion when you're involved in election seasons, um, the reality is I, I can't imagine this would ever be you know, a policy going forward. Well, John, I've uh, I've stormed the beaches of Cancun once before, and I'm not afraid to do it again. So. You have margarita in hand, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to do it for me. By the way, it's Nobel Prize season, and the committee just handed out its first few awards over the weekend. Check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see who won and why. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.